This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. I really want to be useful in your lives this morning. I, I want to be an instrument of grace. I, I really do, so I trust the Lord will do that. I'm thankful for your, as Paul said in Philippians, for your fellowship in the gospel, and, and I thank Ben kind of is your representative to us and to me and just the prayers um, that are needed. Um, I guess I'm encouraged in one way with all the trials and tribulations and troubles. Uh, we got the enemy's attention anyway. <laughs> I'd rather have him after me than forget about me. <laughs> so I'm very thankful. Would you please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4? 1 John chapter 4. Our focus this morning in this chapter, very familiar text, I know. Um, verses 7 through 12 is what I chose to be the um, kind of the paragraph to deal with here. In these short verses, the Apostle John, it's understood he is the writer of this, mentions love. 13 times. I'm not the smartest guy on, in the school in the, or the sharpest knife in the drawer, but if the Spirit mentions something 13 times in a paragraph, I'm going to assume that's the theme. <laughs> right? And so our hermeneutics teaches us that, that that's the theme of this paragraph. It is love. He mentions our love for one another and God's love for us, okay? And I think I can insert by implication our love for God. In fact, in this text, we learn it's God's love for us that is the, pic the picture and the pattern for our love for one another, okay? This epistle was penned by the Apostle John, we understand, one of the three closest friends of our Lord when he walked on this earth. Most likely this text was written in the early or mid-90s, and it's understood that he wrote it from the city of Ephesus where he ministered to the church at Ephesus for the, his latter years, and this is probably penned to at least the seven churches you find in Revelation, okay? The aged beloved apostle writes to these dear Christians whom he calls Numerous times, my little children, my children. I had a German friend who, the, the German term is mikindred, right? The Apostle John says mikindred, or beloved. His people were dear to him. He's concerned, you learn from reading this text, this, this epistle, he's concerned for their steadfastness in Christ. He's concerned for their faith to remain and their walk to remain and their life to show the reality of regeneration, what Christ can do in a sinner's life. We all know he's concerned with these people to stay the course. They're being threatened, they are, by false teachers, assaulting 
these Christians in this church. We, we learn and we believe it's the seed form of what is called Gnosticism, the higher knowledge. They taught, these false teachers, that matter, physical, was inherently evil, but spirit was inherently good. Therefore, a divine being, spirit, could not take on human flesh that's evil, nor would it desire to, you see. And that was the foundation of their error. And so they made a distinction between the man Jesus and the spiritual Christ. The spiritual Christ came upon the man Jesus at his baptism, so they say, but sometime before the crucifixion, the spirit of Christ departed. Because you couldn't have that which is good, spirit, being treated like it was evil, and you couldn't have it in touching the flesh. Spirit's good matters evil. So and all that to say, they flatly deny the incarnation, which then affects the atonement, which then affects how you live your life. It's a big deal what you believe, obviously. They say the Son of God did not come in the flesh. These false teachers, in addition, said they learned this because they had a higher knowledge. That's the Gnostic idea. A hidden knowledge that came from a mysterious fellowship with the spiritual Christ. It's all mystery. It made them a kind of a spiritual elite. They had a higher knowledge, and if you wanted to experience what they knew about God, you had to come to them. They, thought, they saw themselves above the normal distinctions of right or wrong. They did not believe that the law of God had any impact because that was directed toward the flesh, and the flesh is evil, and the spirit's beyond that. So they were beyond obeying God. Lordship of Jesus was not in their theology in the way you and I would understand it. This led to a very licentious, sinful, unholy lifestyle, not much different than the one around them and the one around us. A complete disregard for Christian ethics. Indulgence was not only permitted, but it was encouraged and taught and practiced. The Apostle John writes to correct that, to encourage these believers to stay the course and he does so by giving evidences of being born again. He gives proof of conversion. In this letter, we learn that fellowship with the living God, the true living God, are for, the, are for those who are born again. And the evidence of this reality, of being born again and being in fellowship with God, is shown in our lifestyle, in our practice. If you go to chapter 2, please, just to draw your attention, look at verse 26, just to set this in your mind. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Now, in what way were they trying to deceive them? I think you could go a few verses forward and get to verse 29. If you know that he, speaking of Christ, is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. So the deception you see in putting this together, the deception was that 
coming to Christ, being indwelt by Christ, being indwelt by God, being born of God does not change your lifestyle. That was their teaching. It didn't have to because spirit's good and flesh is evil and your flesh can do whatever it wants. and It doesn't impact your spirit. And that was the teaching that was attacking these Christians. Paul or John says, no, fellowship with the living God changes your life radically, radically. As verse 29 says, those who practice righteousness are born of him. Look at 3.7, little children or mikindred. Make sure no one deceives you. In what way? Well, the one who practices righteousness, guess what? He's righteous, just as he is righteous, you see? Righteous is in accordance to law, being right to a standard, being, being parallel, being within the boundaries of a standard. That's to be righteous. God is righteous. He's the standard, you see. Christ is said to be, in chapter 2, the righteous one. It's Christ who's the standard, you see. Do you think Christ is going to practice licentiousness? You think Christ is going to practice unholy, immoral lifestyle? And you're going to say you're in fellowship with him? Do you see how absurd that is? It's absolutely absurd. It's incompatible with Christ. This is what Paul or John is saying. You can tell how much in the letters I spend my time in is Paul. Sorry, John. <laughs> but I heard they got along, so it's okay. <laughs> right? And look at chapter four, please. I can already tell I'm not going to make it through all my notes, but you don't care, right? When the time comes, I'm stopping. Just like J. Vernon McGee, right? Chop it off. See you next week. Okay. <laughs> Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Here he goes, deception, you see. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and beloved, they're out there now, aren't they? Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ, notice, has come in the flesh. Remember we were saying they denied that? But every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In verse 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. So he's writing to protect them. He's writing to correct. He's writing to set things in order. The primary reason for writing this, if you go to chapter 5, look at verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that, purpose, you may know, have conviction, that you have eternal life. This book was written to give you conviction that you yourself have eternal life. I want to figure out if I fit the book, right, and make adjustments accordingly. If this is written to give that conviction, I like to rest on conviction. I like black and white. I hate gray, right? I hate gray. So then the one believing in Christ has fellowship 
with the living God. We learned that from chapter 1 of this book. And this living God indwells the believer and has transformed and is transforming, changing the heart expressed in the life lived. The nature is radically changed and expresses itself according to the new nature. Is that true? I hope we make it to chapter 4, but go to chapter 3 and look at verses 9. You don't mind, do you, Tony? No. As long as it's from the book, right? Yeah. Okay. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. This is one of my favorite verses because what it teaches is incredible. No one, and John is pretty sure about things, isn't he? He's pretty convinced. I love how he writes. No one who's born of God. What's your text say? Practices sin. That's what he says. No one who's born of God. Do you see? Born from above, a new father. Not your earthly father, but your heavenly father. No one who is born a second time who has a heavenly father practices, keyword, present tense, continually sin. Why? Because his seed, that is God's, abides, present tense, in him. Now he uses the word seed. A farmer term. If, if I go to the store and I, there's packages, you know, and those of you who plant gardens, you've seen this. You go to the store and, and on the turnstile at the feed store up there at Cameron, you know, um, you pick it up and say, oh, man, this says it's going to produce radishes of a certain kind. So you go home and you get your dirt all ready, you open it up, you spread that seed in there. What are you expecting to come up out of the ground? Yellow dent corn? No, man, you bought radish, right? Why is it that the one born of God does not practice sin? It's because the seed from the one in heaven abides in you. It's incompatible with him. It's impossible, frankly. It's impossible. That's what it says. Because, verse 9, his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin. Do you see that? Udunatai. He cannot sin. Dunatai is like dunamis. Has not the ability. The one born of God lacks the ability to continue in sin. That's a direct opposite to the false teachers. This is evidence of being born of God. Verse 10, in case we're confused, there's only two kind of people in the world. <laughs> By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious, <laughs> right? Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. I wish I understood what he said. <laughs> that was a joke. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now we get to chapter 4, <laughs> and I got three minutes. Um, chapter 4, 7 through 12. 
the acid test coming off of 310, coming into 47, the acid test, I would say that your heart has been touched by grace, conquered by Christ, indwelt by God is love. Let's read it together, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifest in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Finally, verse 12 no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. The priority of God is love. He commands it there in 7 and 8. It gives evidence of conversion in 7 and 8. It's the character of God in verses 7 and 8. The picture of love is the giving of his son. The practice of love is our obligation, and it's the perfecting of love in verse 12. Let's, let's go as far as we can here, yeah? Look at verse 7, beloved, me kindred, let us love one another. Fifteen times, at least in the New Testament, the command to love one another is found. Five times in 1 John, the command is found, love one another. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. I know this is not new to you, but I think we need to hear it afresh. We need to hear it afresh. Characteristics of a Christian is that which is characteristic of their God, and that is love. What a time to be known for agape. This world is absolutely imploding, isn't it? From our neighborhood to the around the world. And Christians are everywhere to love, to show the character of God. But we have to be commanded. Isn't that a, that's a command? The church in Ephesus abandoned their first love. So we can lose our love. We can grow cold in our love. We can abandon our love. We can become self-focused and self-centered more and more like I was before I was saved if we don't practice and cultivate love. This is a command which fascinates me. I have to be commanded in the New Testament to love God. That seems rather strange to me. Why would I not love God? It's because I'm a wicked sinner. I have to be commanded to love my wife. Greater than that, she's got to be commanded to love me. <laughs> I like to remind her of that. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> Why do we have to be commanded? It's like Luther said to Erasmus, it's because you're so wicked. Right? John is writing to correct and to remind and to encourage Christians in Ephesus and Asia Minor 
that the priority of God who has changed them is that they are to love one another. Awesome. Can I take you just to verses I know you know? Hebrews 10. This is really applicable for these days. It's been used out of context, in context, uh, for good, bad, and ugly, but it's still in your Bible, and it still means what it means, Hebrews 10. Look at verses 24 and 5. Let us consider, let us think how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How is this command maintained? By being with one another and encouraging one another to love. And what is really cool about the verse for me is that the word stimulate could be translated spur. (laughs) Espoyos in Espanol, man. Andale. Right? (laughs) Right? When you have a spur on your bota, right? And you gig that horse in his side, what do you think he's going to do? Boom! If he doesn't buck you off, he's just going to go, right? That's what we're supposed to do right here. These Christians are not to stay away from one another. We're to be together, not just to kumbaya, but to get together and to spur one another on to love and good deeds. That's what it says. That's part of fulfilling the command. Let us love one another. Let's help each other do that. Go to 1 Peter, please. Oh, boy. I can tell your clock is like everywhere else I go. It's too fast. (laughs) 1 Peter 1, look at verse 22. Tony, I thought you would have that fixed by now. (laughs) Verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love, a genuine love of the brethren, Look at the command in 22. Fervently love one another from the heart. That's an imperative. It's a command, present tense, constantly. But the, 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 the adverb before that is what's really cool to me. It, it, it's, it, the, it's, it, it's used in extra biblical writings to express someone who's tightening the string on a musical instrument. And so what that fervently means is to stretch it out to its maximum. This is not just loving and just if, if it fits your day. This is giving maximum effort to love the brethren. And we meet together in Hebrews 10 to spur one another on to do that. That's the church. That's good stuff. The Old Testament says the same thing, right? Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Go to 1 Thessalonians, please. Oh, this is really cool. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, at least. How about, uh, how about 3? Chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, and then we'll go to 4. Now may our God and Father, verse 11 of chapter 3, himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. Apostle Paul writing, verse 12. And may the Lord cause you, don't you love the sovereignty of God? May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in self-centeredness. 
No, to increase and abound in love for one another. It's not static. You haven't reached your full potential <laughs> in love. You haven't plateaued, or you shouldn't have. That's, you know what happens when you plateau? You come together with us, and we spur you on, and you go to the next level. May the Lord cause you to increase. You see, love is the priority of God for his people. Love for him and love this way. There is nobody you're not to love except the devil. I hate him. Can I say that in a church? Okay. <laughs> Had it? Never mind. Chapter 4, look at verse 9. Again, now as to love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by who? By God to love one another. You see, the indwelling God is our, and the Holy Spirit is our instructor, our teacher. The moment you're saved, you have no doubt you're supposed to love you just begin to learn how to do that, and you increase in it. But it is evidence of being born again is love. Love for enemies, love for neighbor, love for fellow Christians, even irritating Christians, especially those ones, right? Okay, go to 1 John 3. Look at verse 23, chapter 3, 1 John 3, verse 23. This is so simple, but look how, this is his commandment. One, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So there's a Christological, there's a theological element to being a Christian. And then look at the practical. The second part of verse 23, and love one another, just as he commanded us. He commands us to believe in his son as our Lord and Savior, as our sacrifice and redeemer, and to love one another. That's pretty simple. Profound, impossible without the Spirit of God, without being saved, but pretty simple to understand. You don't have to be a rocket science or a Greek scholar Look at chapter 4, verse 19. It was already mentioned once. We know this all so well, but look what it says. I remind you again in a section that is so full of love. Verse 19, chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. You see, it's his love that instigates, initiates, and produces the love that he commands us to do, he's the one who instigates it. He's the one who produces it in the Christian. We don't have any love in us other than that which God poured in there, other than that which he's producing through us. In 1 John 4, please, look at this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So the command is based on this reality that God is the source. Do you see it there in verse 7? Love is from God. I'm, I'm using the Bible, by the way, that Jesus used, the New American Standard, yeah. Um, 
Some brother over here reminded me of that, so I had to echo that in full agreement. Um, for love is from God, okay? That's the first reason given there in verse 7 for the command how to obey that is first and foremost is that God's the source. Love is from God. And then it continues on, right? Look what it says. And everyone who loves, present tense, or everyone who is loving is born of God and knows God. So what he's saying there, that the command, the priority of God is love, it's commanded, and we looked at all over the place, and it is evidence, right, that one has been changed, that one has been transformed. It says it right there. Love is, comes from God, and it's for those who are born of God and know God. I know it's true here, so, but in some places of Christianity, churches, they downplay, they minimize, they, they don't even mention the personal aspect of our relationship with God. You know what I mean? And they have right theology and right doctrine and everything, and they cross all the T's, and their God is as sovereign as ours and all those things. But you start talking like intimate, personal, experiential knowledge of the living God, and they'll run for the hills. You're going charismaniac on me. <laughs> right? You, you probably have relatives like that. The evidence that you have an intimate, personal, experiential, living relationship with the living God, and you know him personally. I don't know about him, man. I know him because he made himself known to me. I'm known by him, and I know him. Isn't that what eternal life is? John 17, 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life. To know the Father and the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. This is eternal life. And you know the word no, know, knowledge, right? Like, like the husband having the intimate knowledge of his wife, the, the, the experience. This is what John is saying. Evidence that you have a personal knowledge, experiential daily walk with the living God is that you are reflecting what you learn from him. And that's love what it says and remember he's correcting bad theology he's correcting error he's correcting false teachers who were saying it doesn't matter how you live god doesn't care if you sin you keep on sinning it's all about the spirit anyway they say john says no you can't separate them god spirit became man flesh and lived in perfect harmony with the law, in holiness, and those who know him are like him. He says, verse 7, love is from God. Everyone who loves, everyone who's loving, present tense, is showing for a fact that they are born of God, a new father, right? They're now characteristics of the new father are being expressed through my life, and I know him personally. Verse 8, he puts it in a negative. Notice what it says in 8. The one who does not love, present tense, the one who's not loving, does not know God, for God is love. How can you say you know God and you're not loving 
Because the God who you say you know is loving. He is love. God is light. God is spirit. God is love. What does it mean that God is love? This is talking about his essence. This is talking about his nature. This is talking about his character. He cannot not be love because he is love. Any more than he can be not light. God is light. What is that ex- what's that expressing? That's expressing holiness. That's expressing sinlessness. That's expressing glory. He cannot not be that way because that's who he is. God is spirit. He cannot cease to be spirit because that's who he is. God is love. He cannot be anything other than that. And you look at our world. Five minutes. You look at our world and you're going to say anything that, you're going to say everything but God is love. Are you? This world is tough. This world is hard. Hey, brother. Man. And there's times you just want to crawl in a cave and you want to go to glory. (laughs) And your theology tells you that God is love. But your experience at the time is Come on, Lord, (laughs) show me a little love here, (laughs) right? Where does John go to convince the world that God is love? It's not in your experience. It's to the cross. Look what he says. Verse 9, here's the picture of love by this The love of God was manifest, it was revealed, uncovered in us, or in our case, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, what purpose that we might live through him. Do you see what he's doing? He's drawing the cross to give a practical expression of how the invisible God loved, who he said in the previous verse, we are to express His nature, because God is love. But you could look around the world and say he's anything but that. But the text goes to the most glorious, the most practical, the most evidential place of the love of God, and it's the cross of Christ. If you ever doubt that God is love, remember this in your sanctuary, that this stick is where God showed his love. Because on that stick, his son was sent from heaven, lived a perfectly righteous, holy life, never once sinned in thought, word, or deed, did everything that the Father commanded of him and did it with joy and love. Even in the Gethsemane, man, even Gethsemane ended up in joyful love obedience because he loved his Father. And the Father sent him Twice it's mentioned in this text, sent, mission. God's mission is a mission of love. It's a a mission of love for sinners. He said in verse 10 to be the propitiation for our sins, to appease, a payment made to placate the one who's offended. God the Father is the offended party, and he, out of love, sent his son who came in love to show the love of God for sinners by being the payment on the cross for your sins. 
Do you ever doubt that God loves you? Look at the cross. That old rugged cross. I love the cross. I love the cross. It's the most rugged, ignoble, shameful, agonizing place. He does not belong there. (laughs) He does not belong there. But God, out of love, sent him there. Verse 11, oh, I've got to move, I'm sorry. Verse 11, coming off of the cross, right? So we're commanded in seven, and it's evidence that we're converted. Nine and 10 is the picture of the love of God that we are to express. Verse 11, beloved, me kindred, he kind of sums it up in 11 and says, if God so loved us, in other words, if God loved us like this, What's the obligation on us to do the same? To do the same. Notice he uses the word ought. We have an obligation. Those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ, which is the evidence of the love of God for you, You are obligated now to show that same love to others. Wow. What is love? Well, we can, the world defines it in all kinds of goofy things. God defined it in the sacrifice of his son. But real quick, if you went to chapter three, look at verse, please, 16, 17, and 18. Just just as an example here. Look at 316, we know love by this that he laid down his life for us, self-sacrifice. We ought, there's that word again, obligation is to lay our lives down for the brethren. We're to follow his pattern, follow in his steps, self-sacrifice. Look at the next verse. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It gets real practical. We can, we can be real mystical and theological, you know, in self-sacrifice and talk about all the stuff we're just dying to ourself. Um, the evidence that I'm dying to myself is using my earthly goods to help those in need. They're in my possession. They're mine. What are you doing with them? Are you dying to yourself to love a brother in need? That's to love like God. Verse 12, <laughs> I'm, I'm, hur- I'm hurrying, Ben. My horse is lathered. He's coming around the final bend. He's reaching for the tape, man. He's a, he, but he's not a long-distance guy, so he's really struggling. So hold on. <laughs> Verse 12, <laughs> show him the barn. Open the door, rattle the grain bucket. Here he comes. Verse 12, right? This is where I wanted to get the whole day right here, man. I just started here. Look at 12. Look how interesting this is. No one has seen God at any time. Now, this God, think of this now. This is so fascinating. This God 
who we are to emulate in love is invisible. Yeah? The world can't see him. But why mention that here? I'm glad you asked. Look at the next line. If we love one another, present tense, so if we here in this body are loving one another, what's the next line say? God abides in us. Do you see what he's saying? The invisible God, the one who no man has ever seen, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6, is seen when the church loves one another. Because that's why he says, the invisible God abides in us, plural, in the body. Just think of this. We are an extension of the Lord Jesus Christ. He told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The church can say, when you see us loving one another, you see the Father. Wow. Can you, can you get the obligation? This world which is lost in darkness, lost in sin, dead in sin, where are they going to see God? In his people when they're loving one another like God loves us. That's our obligation, beloved. We're commanded to do so. We've been born again that enables that. We're indwelt by God himself, who's the initiator and the source. We have no excuse other than sin. So you know what? Repent. Gather together, spur one another on, and let's show the world God. God.